0: I decided to do a special today on the Christmas account. Some of what I was share with you is so old hat with you. You've heard it for years, and it's just, you know, you know it. But there's going to probably be some maybe new things you had never heard before or had never thought through before. We're going to take the Christmas account and go a level deeper. And I think, as I heard from women yesterday, I think you're definitely going to learn something new. For example, how many of you have ever heard, unless you were with us in our study 13, 12, 13 years ago, how many of you have heard of the Jeconian curse? So let's bow in prayer, and then we'll begin our lesson. Father, thank you for the beauty of this day. Thank you for the privilege we have to gather together to get to know you better through the, a look at your holy word. Thank you for your eternal word. That it endures forever and it has so much to learn in it. We can never even in a lifetime glean all that you have to say to us through your written holy word. We thank you, Lord, for the living word who you sent from heaven, the son that was given, the child that was born, the baby Jesus, and, and who he grew to be as a sacrifice for us, the perfect lamb of God. He was the lamb from the very beginning, which is why he was put in a manger. A food trough, an animal food trough. How we thank you he was willing to become that perfect Passover lamb for our sins. We can never thank you enough. We can never praise you enough for your redemptive plan and that we are part of it. I would pray that every woman in this room truly has been redeemed by the precious blood of the lamb. Now I ask that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. That we would be able to focus on um, new things and old things and see them all in the light of eternity. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I'm going to begin on your handout with the Jeconiah curse. And for that, would you turn to Matthew 1, where we have one of the ancestral records of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew, remember, wrote his gospel account with Jewish readers in mind. So the Jewish people, if they're going to read about the ancestry of the Christ, the promised Messiah, they would definitely want to know if he was the son of Abraham and the son of David. So that's exactly how Matthew begins Of course, this begins really the whole New Testament, and it says the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Yes, he qualified. He was the son of David and the son of Abraham. And now, if you will move on down to verse 11 and 12, we hear about a man named Jeconias, who was in the ancestral lineage of Jesus Christ. It says, verse 11, And Josias, that's Josiah, King Josiah, begat... Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon and after they were brought to Babylon Jeconias begat Salathiel and then it goes on from there until you get down to verse 16 and you see that Jacob begat Joseph the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ all right so in verses 11 and 12 of Matthew chapter 1 we learn about this man Jeconias <clears throat> who is also called Jeconiah. And in the Old Testament, he's referred to Coniah. He's all one and the same. He was the second to last king to rule in the southern province of Judah. And uh, that was, he was the second to last king before King Nebuchadnezzar came over and carried all the Jewish people in, in three haulings. He carried the Jewish people over into Babylon, where they stayed in captivity for how many years? Seventy years. Now, Jeconiah, like the kings who had preceded him, ignored all the warnings from the prophets of impending doom if they did not turn from their evil ways and from their idolatry. You would think that the southern province of Judah would have learned a lesson from the northern province, which at that time was called Israel, because they had not listened to their prophets either about turning from their idolatry, and who came and swooped them away? The Assyrians. But God gave this southern kingdom a little more time and some more warnings, but they still didn't learn the lesson. And so they were carried off into captivity. And God placed a curse on the royal lineage of Jeconiah. Although he did have children, this man, we saw one of them, his firstborn was Salathiel. He had seven sons. He probably also had daughter. He had children, and yet God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said that he was to be written down as childless. It says, can you see that? It's Jeremiah 22:30 on your handout. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man... Conias, who is also Jeconias, write him down as childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. This means that even though the line of rightful kingship passed through Jeconiah's sons, And his grandsons and his great-grandsons, etc., all the way down there to Joseph, yet not one of his seed, not one of his male descendants, would ever reign as king upon David's throne. By whose decree? By God's decree. And did you know that is exactly what happened? That is exactly what happened. There has not yet to this day, 2,600 years later, been a descendant of the rightful royal lineage from David that has sat on the throne of Israel. Not a rightful king. After Jeconiah, there was one more king. His name was Zedekiah. He was the one that uh, the Babylonians put a hook in his lip, a big hook. And they dragged him to, to captivity in Babylon with that hook in his mouth. But Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, was not a descendant of Jeconias. He was Jeconias' uncle. So this prophecy, this curse is, is held true. Herod the Great, who was the evil king of Judea when Jesus was born, was the first king to rule in Judea since the time of the Babylonian captivity. But that man and the whole Herod dynasty, they were not even Jewish. Herod was not Jewish. The Herods were the descendants of Esau, not Jacob. Jacob, you know, his name was turned, changed by God to Israel, and from him were the 12 tribes of Israel born. So the Herod, Herod the Great and all the Herods that followed him, they were... Edomites or Edomites they were not Jewish they had no genealogical or biblical right to be sitting as kings in Israel you know they also appointed the high priests Rome appointed they allowed the Herods to appoint the high priests and do you know the high priests ruling in Israel at the time of Jesus were not of the right lineage back to Aaron it was the Aaronic priesthood from which came the high priests the other priests came, came from the tribe of Levi. And so you had false kings sitting on the throne and you had false high priests. And, and it reminds me of what's going to happen in the end times. Both of that is a picture, a, a, a type, a prophetic picture of what's going to happen in the end times. You know, there was a false king sitting on the throne when Jesus came at his first coming. And there's going to be a false king sitting on the throne of Israel, basically, in the at his, the time of his second coming. And he will have as his partner in crime. His name is the Antichrist. We don't know his real name yet, but he's going to have as a partner in crime, a false prophet. It's just like King Herod and the false high priests. That's all a picture of what's going to happen in the future. But Herod the Great did not even worship the true God, Jehovah God. He had pagan temples built throughout Israel. The Jews despised him. He was a terrible guy. He was, there's no you know, he, he gave himself, I guess, the title, the great. But there was nothing great about him. He was a murderer. He was paranoid about losing his position as king. He killed his wife. He killed many of his own sons. He had sons killed at, you know, when I die, kill this son. and that, I mean, he's just a horrible person. Um, but he had no right being on the throne of David. He, he kept his position through his financial support um, with Rome. You know, he gave money to Rome. And he got the money through excess taxes that he put upon the Jewish people. It was to this man, to Herod the Great, that the Magi went, they didn't know any better. <laughs> it's a big mistake to go to him, but they didn't know how evil and paranoid he was about losing his kingship. But they went to him seeking the king of the Jews, Matthew 2.2. And as a result of gleaning that information, Herod initiated the slaughter of all the male children in Bethlehem Ephrathah who were two years of age and under. Now, that would have probably been about 15 to 20 young boys. Don't think of, you know, thousands because Bethlehem was just a small place. But still, one baby boy slaughtered was one too many. Slaughter of the innocents. Why did Herod do that? Why did he slaughter all those baby boys? hearing that, you know, the king of the Jews was born. He did it because he knew he was not the rightful king of the Jews. And the one really behind all of that slaughter was Satan. And he knew that the true king of the Jews was in the womb of Mary. Did you realize that the rightful title of Jesus as king of the Jews was used for the first time by Gentiles? The Magi, the wise men, were from where? probably in the area of Iraq, maybe perhaps even Babylon or Ur of the Chaldees. Who knows? But they were over there from the east somewhere. They were the first ones to rightly call Jesus the king of the Jews. And the last time anyone referred to Jesus as the king of the Jews in the gospel record was also stated by a Gentile. His name was Pontius Pilate, and he put above on the placard above Jesus' cross, he said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Even though he said it in mockery, what was the truth of the matter? He was Jesus, the king of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? The first record of him being the king of the Jews and the last record of him being the king of the Jews was given by Gentiles. Do you think that was maybe a foretaste of the fact that Gentiles would accept him more readily than the Jews? What did the Jewish people say? We will not have this man to reign over us. We have no king but Caesar. Caesar. But back to Matthew's record of Jesus's ancestral lineage. There se- lineage there seems to be because of this Jeconiah curse. There seems to be a real problem for how could Jesus ever reign on David's throne in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant? You know that the Messiah would come sit on David's throne and he would reign for how long? He would reign forever. How could Jesus do? How could he be the fulfillment of the Messiah when Jeconiah is in his ancestral lineage? According to God's curse, doesn't that mean that Jesus cannot rightly reign on David's throne for even a moment, much less forever? Is that what it means? You already know the answer? No, that's not what it means. There is a reason why Jesus circumvents the curse. What does the curse say exactly there, Jeremiah twenty-two thirty. It says, no man of Jeconiah's, Seed. no man of his seed will sit on the throne of David and rule in Judah Jesus was not of the seed of Jeconiah because Matthew presents for us the ancestral lineage of Jesus' stepfather, Joseph now Joseph himself was a seed, a direct seed from Jeconiah he was a physical descendant of Jeconiah so even though Joseph had every right to be a, you know, he, he would fit the, the uh, credentials. Joseph, the carpenter of Nazareth, could have been the king of Israel at that time if it hadn't been for the curse. And God had said no seed of Jeconiah will ever reign and no seed has to this day, including Joseph. But through him went the royal lineage because Joseph was a son of, I mean, his line goes back to Solomon, David's son, Solomon. That's the right kingly uh, lineage. But Jesus, Joseph was under the curse, but Jesus, his stepson, was not under the curse because he wasn't Joseph's physical offspring. Uh, So isn't that interesting? He circumvented the curse. But as fantastic as that is, and we think, oh, well, we've solved that problem. Well, no, we really haven't solved that problem because the Davidic covenant specifically says that Israel's eternal king, the one who will sit on David's throne forever, would need to be a physical descendant of King David. So this then is why it is absolutely critical that we have another genealogical record for Jesus. Do we? Yes, we do. And where is it? Luke chapter 2 one that presents his ancestral line back to King David through his physical mother, Mary, because she too was a bloodline descendant of King David through another one of David's sons named Nathan. Now, had you ever thought about the fact, if you've been in this Bible study, you have, because we've talked about it, but since the destruction of the temple back in 70 A.D., Anyone who would come along since 70 A.D. and claim to be the Messianic fulfiller, the Messiah, you know, the fulfiller of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants, did you realize he cannot, that person cannot prove his ancestry to David? Most Jewish people do not even know their tribe anymore unless their name is Cohen or Levi. Then they know they come from the tribe of Levi. But most most Jewish people can't. They can't. They can't trace their, their uh, lineage back to David, much less to Judah. You know, and he had to be a descendant of the tribe of Judah. According to Genesis 49.10, it said the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the kingly king line, until who comes? Shiloh, the Messiah. There was, there's, been many, there's been many false prophets, I mean not false prophets, false messiahs since the time of Jesus. Many of them claiming to be the Messiah. But none of them could ever prove their lineage. There was one not too many years ago who claimed to be the Messiah, and he had a big following, a guy that was born in New York City. I would so much have wanted to say, well, how can you be the Messiah? Because the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem, and you were born in New York? You do not qualify. got news for you. There is of all the Jews who have ever lived or will ever live, there's only one whose ancestral record is preserved, not just with one record, but with how many? Two, because it takes two witnesses to make adequate proof of testimony according to Deuteronomy 17.6, and we do have two witnesses. We have the witness of Matthew, Joseph's lineage, the royal throne line. We have the witness of Luke, the bloodline through Mary. Actually, Jesus has three. You know, it says out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. We have three for Jesus because we have his divine, I can't even call it gene- genealogy, but we do. We have his record from the beginning. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And if you go down to John 1, 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, let's move on now to the second thing. I'm going to talk about the announcement that broke the 400 years of intertestamental heavenly silence. You know, now you might want to turn one book back to Malachi. I don't know if you're in Luke or Matthew, but go back to Malachi. It's the last book in the, the Old Testament. Some of the very last words that the Jewish people heard from the Lord of hosts. If you read In Malachi, over and over again, it uses that term for God, the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? Who are the hosts? Right, the angels, the Lord of the angelic realm. That's God. Some of the last words we ever heard from the Lord of hosts before he sealed up the Old Testament scripture were found in Malachi 3.1. Look at that first. Where the Lord of hosts. Now, remember who is speaking. Look at the end of that verse. Say it, the Lord of hosts. So the one speaking is God, and what does he say? He says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he, my messenger, shall prepare the way before me. Who's the me? And who else is he? The Lord of hosts. That is a definite. <laughs> right there, it tells you Jesus is, the, the, he is God. All right, now let's look at the very last words that closed up the Old Testament. Turn over one chapter and look at um, Malachi 4, look at verse 5. Again, he's telling how he will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We know that John the Baptist was the one who prepared the way of the Lord. At his is first coming, and he, was in, he came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. But in, when the Lord comes a second time, there's going to be like another Elijah preparing the way. That's why many people say Elijah might be one of the two mighty witnesses. But look at the last verse that seals up the Old Testament. It says, and he, that is the uh, messenger before the Messiah, shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Then... That was said and the Old Testament was sealed. There would then be 400 long years of silence from God. And for a people who were used to hearing from God frequently through their prophets, that must have been like an eternity. Four long centuries of silence. It's what we call the intertestamental period. There's 400 years between Malachi and Matthew and no word from God. But Finally, finally, the fullness of the time had come, and God would speak again, this time not through one of his prophets, but through one of his angels. He would send Gabriel. The first words from the the lips of Gabriel, well, I'll get to those in a minute, but would you flip over to Luke? Luke um, gives us. The account of two people who would become the parents of the promised forerunner of the Messiah. The fulfillment of what Malachi had said, God had said through Malachi, when he would send his messenger who would prepare the way before him. Luke presents us with the record of the first in 400 years of heavenly silence announcement. He begins that record when God's finally going to... Oh, speak again through, through Gabriel. He begins by introducing us to two people. And their names, I told you they're the parents of the promised forerunner. Their names are a message from God. What are their names? Zacharias, who was from the Levitical priesthood. And Elizabeth, who came from Aaron, the brother of Moses. She was in that lineage. And Aaron... That was the Aaronic priesthood. That's where the high priests were all to come from Aaron, descendants of Aaron. And I told you already, Herod and his, not Herod, but the the high priests, Caiaphas and Annas and all those guys were not from the Aaronic priesthood. So they were usurpers of that. But Zechariah was a true Levitical priest and and Elizabeth was from the true, she wasn't a high priest because she was female, but she came from Aaron. And their names are so significant because these are the first words from God in 400 years, and he speaks through their names. Remember how many times we've talked about the fact that names in the Bible are so significant. Well, you know what the name Zechariah means in Hebrew? It means the Lord remembers. And the name Elizabeth, in case your name is Elizabeth, it means covenant promise of God. So when you put those two names together, you have a message from God. And here it is, the Lord remembers his covenant promise. Isn't that amazing? God remembered all of his covenant promises that he had made throughout the Old Testament. He remembered his promise to Adam. Adam was the father of the entire human race. He had promised Adam that he would send a woman's seed who would crush the head of the serpent. He remembered his promise to Abraham Now, Abraham, I know this always shocks people when I say it, but Abraham was a Gentile. Where did Abraham come from, ladies? Ur of the Chaldees. That makes him a Gentile. But he crossed over the Euphrates River. And therefore, he became known as a Hebrew because Hebrew means crossed over one. And it was from his descendants. He had Isaac and then Jacob. And Jacob's name was turned to Israel. And from him came... A new people, the Jewish people. But the Jewish people came from the Gentile people. And now the Gentile people of the church are grafted on to the, (laughs) I mean, God just works it all so perfectly, doesn't he? Because he's telling us something. We're all one. In him, we are all one. So God remembered his promise to Adam, father of the whole human race. He remembered his promise to Abraham, who was a Gentile who became the father of the Jewish race. Actually, he's the father of the Muslims, the father of the Christians, and he's the father of the Jews, if you really want to be specific. And God remembered his promise to David, who was a Jew. That it would be his greater son who would sit on the throne of Israel and reign over his kingdom forever. And God remembered his promise of Malachi 3.1 to send his messenger to prepare the way before the coming of the Lord of hosts himself, the Messiah. And what were they told? Elizabeth and Zacharias. Zacharias. What was he told to name his son? John. You know what John means? grace of God isn't that what it was all about not only was it the grace of God to Zechariah and Elizabeth who could never have children and now she had a problem you know she was barren her whole child bearing years she was barren never conceived a child and now she had a double problem because she was post-menopausal <laughs> <laughs> which does present a bit of a problem right um, so that you know, to hear that they were going to have a son, he was going to be the forerunner of the minds, that's the grace of God. That is definitely the grace of God. But it was also the grace of God that the forerunner was going to announce the coming of the kingdom of God because the king was coming behind him shortly. John was six months older than Jesus. And uh, anyway, um, where was I? In speaking to Zacharias about the birth of John, Gabriel quoted, now this is in somewhere... I can't find my place. I'm all confused. But when when Gabriel is speaking to Zacharias, he says to him that his son will be the one who will turn. He's quoting exactly from the last verse of Malachi. Malachi 4, 6. He says, he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Is that not incredible? For 400 years... God had been totally silent. But when that silence was broken, it was like he picked up right where he had left off. The last words of the Old Testament were, were that the, the forerunner would turn the hearts of the children to the fathers, etc. Then along comes Gabriel, and his first message to man in 400 years is that the forerunner is coming, and he's going to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. So it's like God's clock stopped ticking, In Malachi, 400 years later, it just picked up, started ticking again. So who could say that the Old Testament wasn't the preparation for the New Testament? Okay, let's talk about the virgin now, the virgin conception. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John, Gabriel again came to planet Earth, but this time with an even greater announcement to proclaim than the birth of the Messiah's forerunner. As wonderful as that was, and such a, you know, it was a miraculous conception, yet John was born by the seed of man. He was born You know, he was conceived, I should say, he was conceived the normal way. But this next message, which was given to a young Jewish virgin named Miriam, this message was the coming of the Messiah himself, and he would have a most unusual conception. Remember, God had told Adam and Eve in the garden that the one who would defeat Satan, crush his head, would be from a woman's seed, a woman's seed. Now, Adam and Eve didn't get that. I am sure they did not get that. Uh, But God was speaking, of course, about a unique conception, since women, we know, do not have seed. Men have the seed, they have the sperm, we have the egg. All right, but years later, through the prophet Isaiah, God would clarify what He was speaking about back in Genesis three fifteen to Adam and Eve. He gave a sign to King Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, and here is the sign: now, This is pretty spectacular. A virgin would conceive. Wow. Talk about impossible. A virgin would conceive and bear a son whose name shall be Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Isaiah seven fourteen. You want a sign? Ahaz, I'll give you a sign. And I know people and the Jewish people over the years have said, no, that just means a young woman will have a child. Big deal. What kind of sign is that? A young woman will have a child? That happens every single day. No, the word is virgin specifically, and every other time it's used in the Old Testament, it speaks of a virgin. A virgin shall conceive a son, and he will be God with us. What is that but the God-man, the incarnation of God? Through another one of his prophets, God said that the one whose goings forth had been from old, from everlasting. Who is that? Who is the one from old, from everlasting? That means eternal. Who is that? God. He said in Micah 5.2, the one whose goings forth had been from old, from everlasting, would come forth out of Bethlehem, Ephrata. In other words, the everlasting one would come out of eternity to a literal little village on planet Earth called Bethlehem. Again, very clearly, a prophecy of the incarnation of God, God becoming man. There were also the amazing words of Jeremiah 31, 22, which mystified the Jewish scholars for centuries and still to this day mystifies the Jewish scholars. It says, the Lord hath created a new thing, and a virgin birth is a new thing. <laughs> The Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Now, although the Jewish people who have not accepted Jesus Christ refuse to see the significance of this verse in light of the virgin conception of Jesus, yet many rabbis over the years have confessed that this verse seems to be saying that the Messiah would not have an earthly father. Also, one rabbinical explanation for that verse is this, and this is a direct quote. It says, the birth of Messiah shall be like the dew of the Lord. You know, I woke up this morning and there was dew on the grass. They say the birth of the Messiah shall be like the dew of the Lord as drops upon the grass without the action of man. End of quote. Guess what? They're right. They were exactly right. They interpreted that verse correctly. The Messiah would come to earth without the action of man. You see, omnipotent God had been orchestrating births. If you think about this whole thing, it's just phenomenal. He has to be omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent to figure all this out. But he had been orchestrating births and marriages and and ancestries from Adam and Eve on down. So that when the fullness of time came, he could send forth his son, made of a woman, to redeem them who are under the law. That's Galatians 4.4. And that time had come. Finally had come. He was ready. He had in place the exact two godly remnant Jewish young people that he would make use to make sure that the child given unto us is born and the, and the son is given. That, you know, Isaiah 9, 6, it says unto us, this is common on Christmas cards, isn't it? Unto us a child is born. We understand that, okay? Jesus was born from Mary. Unto us a child is given. But it also says unto us a son is given. Now, if you think about that, you cannot give... Something that isn't already in existence. God could not give a son who he did not already have. You get it? That speaks of the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. That he is eternal. And what it goes on to say, and he shall be called what? Wonderful. Counselor. The mighty God. That's the deity of Christ right there. The mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. So God had in place the two godly remnant Jewish young people who both of them could trace their genealogy at that time because it's before the temple records are destroyed back to David, one through the royal throne line, circumventing the Jeconian curse and the other one, the royal physical line of David. So he had them finally in place and they were betrothed to one another, which is a good thing. It was a good thing they were already betrothed before Mary was impregnated with the son who was given. Because what if she had been impregnated before her betrothal? Joseph would not have married her. But they were already betrothed. And a betrothal in the Jewish community at that time was as good as the marriage. It was sealed, except for the the consummation of it. So uh, everything was perfect. God would also orchestrate world events in order to get Mary and Joseph out of Nazareth up in Galilee down 96 miles south to Bethlehem he needed to get them out of there he had, needed to move them down to Bethlehem and he needed to move them just in time for Jesus to be born there in Bethlehem ephrata now because <clears throat> the roman emperor at that time augustus caesar which is not his name. Those are two titles. He gave himself the title Augustus because it means exalted one. You know, it would be like calling myself Augustus Catherine. (laughs) And then the other title, Caesar, is the same as uh, Kaiser or Tsar. So it's like exalted Tsar. His real name was Octavius. I guess he didn't like that. But he needed money. Okay, he needed money to maintain the vast military of the Roman Empire and to make sure he could continue his luxurious lifestyle, so he decreed a tax on every single person in the 27 provinces of the Roman Empire. But to do that, a census needed to be taken. Do you think that that haughty, arrogant, uh, self-centered, egotistical Roman emperor realized that his taxation plan was divinely predetermined and prearranged in order to get two of the world's little people, Mary and Joseph, out of one despicable little town called Nazareth down to another little crummy town called Bethlehem. Do you think if you had told Octavius that truth, what his response would have been? You gotta be kidding. He would just laugh with scorn, but that is exactly what the truth of the matter was. God put the idea in his mind to have a, you know, a tax, and to have the tax, you have to have it everywhere, and you have to have a census, first of all. And do you think that the arrogant, murderous, usurper king of Israel, Herod the Great, knew of the sovereign plan behind his decision to tax the Jewish people according to the Roman method of taxation instead of the Jewish method of taxation? You see, if he had, he had a choice, Herod was king of Israel, right? He had a choice. He could tax the people of his land the Roman way or the Jewish way. Now, if he had selected the Jewish method, Mary and Joseph would have not needed to go to Bethlehem. They would have stayed in Nazareth, and where would Jesus have been born? In Nazareth, and that would not fulfill Micah 5.2. And Herod chose the Roman method of taxation, and that made sure that the people had to go to their place of inheritance rather than their place of residence. And since both Mary and Joseph, their place of inheritance was Bethlehem because they were of the lineage of David, and David had been born in Bethlehem in the tribe of Judah. That was the area of Judea. They had to leave Nazareth and go down to Bethlehem Ephratah. He wouldn't have qualified if he had been born in Nazareth. The prophecy said that the Messiah would come forth from Bethlehem Ephrata. Did you know there were two Bethlehems at that time? There was one in the north and there was one in the south. He needed to be born in the one that was six miles south of Jerusalem. Did you know that Bethlehem Ephrata was where Ruth met her kinsman redeemer Boaz? Did you know that Bethlehem Ephrata was where Samuel, the prophet Samuel, introduced Israel to her first divinely Appointed king. A young shepherd boy named David. Now, Israel had wanted a king who was tall and handsome. And, you know, they picked Saul. But he was not God's divinely appointed king. So isn't that interesting in Bethlehem? David was introduced by the prophet to Israel, the first divinely appointed king. And this is where God had said that the Divinely appointed greater son of David would also be, be born. David was born in Bethlehem, and so his greater son was to be born in Bethlehem. And also, of course, both names, Bethlehem and Ephrata are so meaningful because Bethlehem means what in Hebrew? House of bread. What, a, what greater place could there be for the one who was the bread of life himself, the, man, the true manna from heaven, to be born than in the house of bread? And what does Ephrata mean? Fruitful means fruitful. No one has been more spiritually fruitful than Jesus Christ, the true vine. So God used Caesar Augustus's census tax decree and he used Herod the Great's use of the Roman manner of tax collection so that Joseph and Mary had to leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem. Isn't God's providence absolutely amazing? Do you think if he orchestrated all those circumstances regarding the Lord's first coming, that he is yet at work orchestrating all the events for his second coming? Uh Uh-huh. He certainly is. He's at work today. He's putting, well, today's voting day. He's putting people in positions. (laughs) I, I told the ladies yesterday, you might not like Putin very much. I sure don't. I mean, talk about an egotist. There you are. But God has him there because it's all working out in his plan. Russia's going to come with Iraq, and they're going to invade Israel. I mean, the whole stage is being set. Or is it Iran? I can't remember which one, but they're both in place regardless. The war of Gog and Magog. So God is, you know, he's providential. He literally set the whole world in motion with thousands of people going from their original places of inheritance to their places of of residence, so that one young teenage pregnant girl would give birth to the one from everlasting in the house of fruitful bread. God will move entire populations and empires to make sure that his prophecies are fulfilled precisely and also right on time. He is never a minute late, is he? So... Well, and you think about this, it was really another miracle that Mary managed that long uphill trip to Bethlehem from Nazareth. I say uphill because even though they were heading south, Bethlehem is 1,000 feet higher than Nazareth. So she's going 96 miles uphill on a donkey. That's pretty hard when you're in your ninth month of pregnancy. I don't recommend it. <laughs> and we can be sure that Satan was very busy trying to cause some kind of physical harm to Mary on this arduous trip in her late pregnancy. Even, think of this, even if she had gone into labor a couple miles outside of Bethlehem, Ephrata, ba- uh, baby Jesus' birth would not have fulfilled Micah 5, 2 because he would not have been born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. And that that little what-if scenario had actually happened. Do you remember Rachel? She had uh, also traveled while she was pregnant, and she gave birth Apparently prematurely outside of Bethlehem Ephrata. She didn't make it to the little town. She was outside and she gave birth to Benjamin and she died in the process. Genesis 35, 19. Well, going back to Gabriel and to his announcement to Mary, Miriam, she, you know, she heard what he said that she would, she would give birth to the son of God. You know, she got that part, but she said, well, how can this be? How can this be since I have never known a man? Luke 1.34. That is her own testimony as to her virginity. Gabriel then described that most mysterious and delicate event of how she would conceive. He, he described it in simple yet very noble and majestic terms. The Holy Spirit would come upon her. And the power of the highest would overshadow her so that the holy one born of her would be called the son of God. The one to be born of Mary's womb was to be the incarnation of holiness. You see, it was, and I know you will hear people even within Christendom all over the place. There's all kinds of liberals that say the virgin birth was not important. Oh, that is so wrong it was absolutely vital that Mary was a virgin because Jesus had to have innocent blood. According to Leviticus 17.11, the curse of sin affected the blood because the life of the flesh is the blood. The blood is the life of the flesh. Would we be able to live without blood? No, if we could, we could be sinless, (laughs) but we can't. If Jesus was to be our Savior, and if we were to be saved by the shedding of his innocent blood, then his blood needed to be pure, and it needed to be uncorrupted. The virgin birth was absolutely necessary so that Christ would have holy, sinless blood. Every human being who has ever been born since Cain and Abel have been born unholy because they inherited the Adamic sin nature. Only Christ, only Christ was born holy without inheriting the Adamic sin nature. Well, you might ask, well, how is this possible? How is it possible that he did not inherit the Adamic sin nature? You know, we get it, he didn't have a human father, but didn't he inherit the sin nature through his biological blood mother, Mary? No, he didn't. And let me give you some biological facts, okay, to explain why. Did you know that from the time of conception to the birth of an infant, not one drop of blood passes from the mother to the child, unless it's you know, some kind of freaky mistake, accident. But none of, that's why you can be a mother with, who's B positive and have a, a child who's O positive. Not one drop of blood from the mother passes into the child in her womb. Did you know that every drop of blood in the newborn is produced within the child himself? and that it is solely the result of the introduction of the male sperm. That is why it says, in Adam all die, not in Eve. Eve sinned, but if Adam hadn't, then we, everything would have been hunky-dory. <laughs> and Adam wasn't deceived. He willfully chose to disobey God. If you think about <clears throat> God's whole plan from the very beginning, he created woman. And he created the whole reproductive system solely for the purpose, you know, because he had in mind the way in which he would bring his son into this world sinless. So the way he designed it was so that if he was son, the son was born of a virgin, he would receive, pure, I mean, he wouldn't have stained blood from the Adamic sin nature. God created woman in such a way that no blood would pass to the offspring uh, of her womb. Isn't that amazing? It's just so perfect. And he gave Christ a virgin birth so that the blood created within Jesus was not corrupted by the male influence. It, so it was a perfect solution. And, and it was a solution that only omnipotent God, omniscient God could ever figure out. But it does make the virgin birth absolutely vital, doesn't it? Absolutely vital. The only way the Redeemer could be born sinless was to be conceived by God. The creative power of the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary as the Shekinah glory had once overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of Israel. The eternal Son of God reached out and took to himself a true and complete, untainted humanity. He took upon himself body, soul, and spirit of humanity without diminishing his essential deity one single bit and if you can't wrap your mind around that guess what no one else has ever been able to wrap their mind around it. but it happened now there's a lot of speculation about where mary and joseph spent the night when jesus was born you know whether it was in the bottom of bottom of an inn where they kept animals because all the rooms for the people up above were occupied or whether it was in a cave It doesn't really matter. One thing we do know for sure is that the Christ child was born in the humblest, humblest of circumstances. Because he was born in an area where animals were kept. How do we know that? What was he laid in? He was laid in a manger. And a manger is an animal food trough where they put the food for the animals. Well, that's very appropriate. Why not? After all, he was the lamb. Wasn't he? And speaking of lambs, to whom was God the first God sent announcement of the Savior's birth given? Shepherds. Common shepherds. If you know, if word of this reached the ears of the Jewish religious leaders, and I'm sure it did, we can be sure that those guys would have scorned and disbelieved that the Messiah had truly been born. Because if he had truly been born. And they knew he was to be born in Bethlehem Ephrata because they told Herod the Great that when the wise men came and asked Herod, he called the, the religious rulers and they knew right away where the Messiah was to be born. They said Bethlehem Ephrata. Um, but if they had heard that the first announcement of the Messiah's birth had been given to shepherds, common shepherds who they despised and looked down on because they, th- they th- said they were ceremonially unclean and they were ignorant because they had not been schooled in the in the law, the Torah... They, they would have said, you know, it couldn't be the true Messiah because the announcement would have been made to, to us. We're the spiritual leaders of the nation, at least to, you know, the high priest. But I got to thinking, it's, well, one thing, I think they forgot that all their patriarchs had been shepherds. <laughs> Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all shepherds. I think they forgot that Moses was tending to sheep when God spoke to him from a burning bush. Hmm. But I thought how interesting it is, the truth of how God often hides the truth and things from the mighty and the elite and the educated and the wealthy of this world. And who does he reveal truths to? To the poor, the weak, the foolish, the lowly. And that's exactly what he did. He did not give the first announcement of the birth of the Christ to the corrupt high priest who didn't even come from the right lineage of Aaron, instead he gave the announcement of the coming Messiah to a godly Levitical priest, Zechariah, and to a godly woman, the wife of the Levitical priest, who did go back to Aaron, and he did not make the announcement to a usurper king, Herod the Great, who wasn't even Jewish, he gave the announcement of the rightful king to rightful, godly, people who both came from the lineage of King David, Joseph and Mary. How beautiful. To believers, to you and I who understand It is absolutely perfect that the shepherds were the original recipients of the heavenly announcement of the birth of the Savior, which is Christ the Lord. It's also perfect that from every indication of the historical record, these poor and lowly Bethlehemite shepherds were the men who were hired by the temple authorities to tend the sheep and to tend the lambs that were used for the sacrifices in nearby Jerusalem in the temple. Was it not perfect that the birth announcement of the once-for-all Passover lamb was given to a group of men who tended lambs that would be sold for the sacrificial purposes in the temple? Isn't that just perfect? So perfect. A transition, you see, was about to occur. Sheep would no longer die for the sins of shepherds. The good shepherd would die for the sheep no group of people would be better able to understand and appreciate the birth of the good shepherd than shepherds themselves. Well, when the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, it says the glory of the Lord shone round about them. That's Luke 2.9. Now this glory of the Lord that's shining all in the sky around the Bethlehem shepherds, was the same Shekinah glory that had appeared in the tabernacle way back in Exodus chapter 40, over the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Now, it had been more than 500 years since Ezekiel, saw the glory of the Lord, that Shekinah glory, leave the temple. Remember the prophet Ezekiel got to see the glory, that Shekinah glory leave from over the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, leave the temple, leave the city of Jerusalem, out the eastern gate, that Shekinah glory Ezekiel saw go down the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives and then disappear. And the Shekinah glory had not been in Israel since that time. Remember, Ichabod was written over Israel. What does Ichabod mean? The glory has departed. And so now it's some 500 years, and with the birth of Jesus Christ, the Shekinah glory of God was again seen over Israel by a handful of temple shepherds. And those shepherds were sore afraid. Don't you love that? Sore afraid. Until the angel spoke the words Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. No better news has ever been delivered, which shall be to all people. All people. God's plan from the very beginning was for all people, not just the Jews, all people. The universal availability of salvation is proclaimed once again. Now, Simeon and Anna, Luke 2, verses 25 to 38, the godly remnant of Israel. Israel had a lot of people who, you know, were not real believers, but there's always a remnant. It is said that at the time of the Lord's first coming, there was an ever-increasing realization that the time was ripe. The people who studied their scriptures, they knew from Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 that the time was coming. It was approaching. There was something of eternal consequence that was preparing to occur. The long-awaited Messiah was about to be revealed. Now, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they told people. And uh, we know that Anna goes and tells all the remnant in Jerusalem about the coming uh, when, she, when she saw baby Jesus. So there was a remnant, the believers in Israel, who just felt in their spirits that something of significance, very eternal significance, was about to happen. Can God do that again? Do you feel that in your spirit? Are you like my spirit? My spirit is telling me that something again of eternal significance is in the working. I really do believe it is. In fact, one godly old man. And there is a record that says that Simeon was about 113 years old. That's pretty old in my book. That he had received a divine promise from the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ, the consolation of Israel. If he's 113 years old and he had been given that promise, then it definitely was just right around the corner. Just so happens he was in the temple when Mary and Joseph came in with eight-day-old baby Jesus to have him circumcised. And What did the Holy Spirit tell Simeon the minute he laid eyes on that baby? I think maybe he could see the Shekinah glory (laughs) over him. He knew instantly that his eyes had seen, and now he was ready to die. He was ready to die. It reminds me of Methuselah. You know, Methuselah means when he dies, it shall happen. And the year Methuselah died was the year the flood happened and here again Simeon you know had been promised that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Christ well as he is praising God um Anna just happens you think Anna just happened to pass by and hear Simeon no of course she was there she was old too she was a prophetess do you know she came from the tribe of Asher which tells us that those 10 tribes of Israel that were carried off by Assyria are not lost forever. There was a godly remnant of every tribe that came down to Jerusalem and rightly uh, worshiped God in Jerusalem. She was of the tribe of Asher. Asher was one of those tribes carried off. And you know what Asher means in Hebrew? I happen to know because I have a grandson named Caleb Asher. And when my daughter told me that, I said, what? (laughs) Asher? Really? You are serious? She said, yeah, Mom, he came from a good tribe. I looked it up. Yeah, he had a good, that was a good tribe. But you know what the name means? Asher means happy. Oh, and there is no grandchild as happy as my little Caleb Asher. He is one happy little kid. He talks a mile a minute. He just talk, talk, talk. He's so happy. Anyway, she was from the tribe of Asher, and she had served the Lord in the temple day and night, fasting and praying for how many years? Whew. 84 years in the temple, day and night, fasting and praying. I mean, that's commitment. And she had been married. She was a widow, but she had been married for seven years. So if you add 84 and seven, and then you have to add how old she was when she got married. Let's say she was 14. If she was 14 or 15, she's about 105 or 106 years old. And she is so excited that she runs out and she tells all them in Jerusalem who were looking for... For redemption. So there were people waiting and anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They, they, they were right in assessing that baby Jesus was the Messiah. And they became the two witnesses in Jerusalem in the very temple itself to verify the arrival of the Messiah. Always takes two witnesses. So we had two. We had a man and a woman. It's significant that Simeon, who gave the first public recognition of the Messiah, which was in the temple, that he also, like the angel to the shepherds, included a statement about Gentiles being among people whom Jesus would save. In Luke two thirty-two, Simeon quotes from Isaiah forty-two six and Isaiah forty-nine six and declares that eight-day-old Jesus is to be a light to lighten. The Gentiles. Do you know that the highest honor ever given to Israel is that she brought forth the Savior of the world? Her destiny, Israel's destiny, and her history is all tied to that infant that Simeon was cradling in his arms. Well, the arrival of the wise men and the star of Bethlehem, Matthew 2. If you want to turn to Matthew 2 or just look at what I've given you on the handout. I don't know if I gave you. Yeah, I gave you some verses down there. There really is, I don't think, any part of the Christmas story that is more clouded with misunderstanding and myth than the arrival of the magi, the wise men from the east. I hope you know that they did not come to the nativity scene where, the, you know, baby Jesus was in the manger. Now, I know that when we set up our nativity scenes for Christmas, they're usually right there with the shepherds and the angel and Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. But I have a friend who actually puts her wise men in, the other, in another room <laughs> because it took them about, they say, two years to get from where they were in the east, probably Babylon or Iraq somewhere. Maybe they even came like, Abraham from Ur the Chaldees, I don't know. But they were from the east. It took them about two years once they saw the star of Bethlehem to get to Jerusalem. And so they didn't arrive until, and that's why Herod slayed, slayed, is that right? Slew, slew, <laughs> all the babies two years of age and under, all the male babies. But anyway, they, did, they didn't come till about two years later. And we don't know how many wise men there were. I know they usually say three, and they even have names for them, but what, where do you think the three came from? The three gifts, frank gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and so that's why, and there are there are reports that there could have been as many as two or three, up to 14, and some even say as many as 200, but that would really be expensive for our nativity sets, wouldn't it? 200, <laughs> 200 wiser. <why> <laughs> but anyway, um, because of Daniel's, seventy weeks prophecy, Daniel nine twenty four to twenty seven, the Magi. Now these were believing Gentiles, and they had been um, probably strongly influenced. There was a reason. There's lots of reasons why God took. Um, Israel captive to Babylon for 70 years is because one reason they hadn't been observing the seven year rest for the land, but also he wanted to use Daniel and the godly Jews who were carried over into Babylon to be a testimony to those lost Gentiles, and indeed they were, even King Nebuchadnezzar got saved because of Daniel. And so these magi, you know, their fathers, grandfathers, they had become believers, and they, they studied the Old Testament scriptures, and they knew because of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy that the arrival of the Messiah was near. Also, they knew because of a 14th century B.C. prophet named Balaam, of all people. Balaam. He was a bad prophet. He was a prophet of God, but he was materialistic, and he was disobedient. But Balaam was, I mean, I guess if God could use Balaam's donkey, he could use Balaam. So he used Balaam to speak an utterly amazing prophecy that is often overlooked. It's in Numbers twenty-four seventeen. Balaam had said, there shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter, which is symbolic of a king, shall rise out of Israel. So Daniel and the other Jews who were taken captive into Babylon would have known that this referred to, this prophecy referred to the promised Messiah, the king of the Jews. And this is therefore why the wise men from the east, when they finally got to Jerusalem, asked Herod, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Because we have seen his star in the east. It's because of Balaam's prophecy. Well, when the wise men saw the phenomena. In the sky, they gathered together gifts worthy to take to a king. This is the origin of Christmas gifts. It was, and it still is, the custom in the East to take a king, to approach a king with gifts. So, gifts in hand, they set out to travel many weary miles of hot desert sand, enduring the fatigue and the dangers that such a trip would bring in order to seek the king of the Jews and the savior of the world. And they did not stop until they found him. That was commitment, wasn't it? That is commitment. If you think that it took them over hot desert sands, approximately, you know, after they got everything together, took them about two years to get there. How many years did it take them then to get back? Another two years. So that's a four-year commitment. Commitment. So when they saw that star, they truly believed and they wanted to go and find the king of the Jews because they wanted to fall at his feet and do what? Worship him. Did you know that 700 years before the Lord's first coming that Isaiah had predicted that Gentiles would come to the light of the Lord on camels from the east, dromedaries, bearing gifts I have it down there on your notes. It's the last thing on your handout. And, and the Gentiles shall come to the light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. The multitude of camels shall cover thee. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba, shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. That prophecy was partially fulfilled when the Magi came to the baby Jesus with their gifts. This will be literally fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. When you know all those Arabs who are giving us such a hard time right now, Gentile Arabs are, yeah, they're Gentiles. When they will finally believe, you know, they'll be in the millennial kingdom. They will believe that Jesus truly is the light of the, the world. And they will come to him as he's reigning in Jerusalem, bearing gifts. But do you notice the gifts mentioned? Golden incense. Well, the incense is frankincense. What's missing there? Myrrh, because myrrh speaks of death, death, and Jesus will never, ever die again. Well, the star of Bethlehem has caused a lot of speculation over the centuries. Some have said it was a conjunction of two planets. Some have said that it was a supernova. Others have said that it was something like an erratic comet or that it was a low-hanging meteor and all kinds of other things. But the magi were astronomers. They were way ahead of their times. They were always studying the sky. They were familiar with those kind of natural happenings in the sky. So it would have taken more than a natural phenomena for them to set out on such a lengthy journey. Since the Bible doesn't explain the star, we can't be dogmatic about it. But we do know that it did not behave at all like a regular star or a planet or a meteor or a comet when it first appeared. In the sky, and the the wise men are a long way off, but they, they see it. And when it first appears, they realized its significance immediately, and they set off for Jerusalem. The star, however, did not lead them to Jerusalem. They had their own GPS system. They knew how to get to Jerusalem. They knew from the scripture where to go. They knew to go to Israel, to Jerusalem, the capital. And uh, the star did not lead them there. Apparently, the star only appeared long enough for them to see it, to understand its significance, to get their gifts, to pack up their camels, and to head out. But then, after leaving Herod in Jerusalem to begin the short journey down to Bethlehem, after they found out Bethlehem Ephrata from the religious rulers, who Herod called in and said, where is it born? It says in Matthew 2.9 that the, the Magi were surprised. It says, lo, they were full of exceeding great joy. You know why? Because they again saw the star. First time in two years, they saw it again. And this time it did lead them. And it actually led them right to the house where Jesus, young two-year-old Jesus, was with Mary and Joseph. And that star actually stood over the very house in which the Christ child was residing. Now, to me, the best explanation for this star is that it was the manifestation of the glory of God. It likewise may have been the glory of God that led Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. You know, it says in Genesis 12, 1, that Abraham was to set out for the land God would show him. Abraham left not knowing where he was going. So do you think maybe the Shekinah glory of God led him step by step? Could very well be. We know that throughout the Old Testament, God's glory was manifested as light. He had guided the children of Israel with this same glory known as the Shekinah glory you know, in the wilderness for 40 years. It would lead them, and when it would stop, they would know to set up camp, you know, their tents in the tabernacle, and then when it would start to move, the the children in the wilderness knew that they were to follow. Um, And then, of course, one day, it stayed over the holy place, over the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. That's where the Shekinah glory stood. When the mysterious star... Stood over, and that's the word used, stood over where Jesus was in that house. It was a reenactment of the Shekinah glory of God standing over the place where God himself dwelt. In Christ, God was dwelling in a human tabernacle. So that, to me, makes the best sense, that it was the Shekinah glory cloud. The travelers from the east had come to Israel for only one purpose. All that long journey, they wanted to find the one who was born, the king of the Jews, so that they might worship him. Despite the dark pagan world that was surrounding them, they had heard God's voice through the prophets. They believed the scripture. Although, though they may have had limited spiritual privilege compared to the Jews, they recognized God's light when it shined on them. They responded by seeking him, no matter what the cost personally was. God promises to this day that those who seek him, who genuinely seek him, and live up to the light of truth he puts in every man, they will never fail to find him. And that is why I like that little bumper sticker that says, wise men still seek him. So true. Let's pray. Father, we should indeed take great comfort in the fact of your sovereign providential control of history and of the world. So we do not need to be full of anxiety over the abundance of all the wicked events that are occurring today in this world. We know you are setting the stage for the second coming of your son. So we don't need to be worried about which government is going to overthrow which other government or which self-centered corrupt rulers will rise to center stage or who will win the elections today because no ruler and no power can do anything that you do not allow. Nothing happens that is not in some way carrying out your ultimate purposes and plans and that gives us such comfort of heart. Help us always to truly see everything that happens in this world with eyes of faith, knowing that you are always in control, not only in heaven, but on earth. We love you, Jesus, for saving us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And may we all truly be light as we approach this Christmas season, that we can be a testimony to everybody we come into contact with. And may we all meet again in January, safe and sound, so that we can Once again, look at your servant Stephen. We do pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.